Good morning. I am Pastor Jay, and welcome. How do you like our tent seating this year? Better than last? Um, we added a couple sections to the tent. It would have been one long. You would have needed binoculars to see the distance there. I want to thank uh, our amateur Chris. Where did he go? Oh, there he is. And his crew up here. Thank you. That was really good. also want to thank those that are working in the nursery today. They are sacrificing because they cannot attend the one service. And also want to thank those that serve breakfast today. Who's, where are you guys? Where's the breakfast crew? There they are. Thank you for all that. And our buildings and ground crew who were out here all week putting this thing up. Uh, it is a skill set that apparently none of us are real good at uh, putting up tents. We just don't. These guys do a fantastic job. We already got a rip that we didn't intend to get suddenly. And, uh, but these guys have learned how to do it well. Thankful for them. And it's hard to find experts on this subject to even consult. Uh, so very thankful. But I was out here a couple times talking to them. And this, is, this tent by itself weighs over a half ton. Just, uh, un, you know, fold it up. Then you had all the poles and how to do it. And they have learned to do it very well. And I'm very thankful for all the time and effort it takes to, to do this. Um, with that, I invite you to open your Bibles. We're going to continue in our series in 1 Corinthians. As you do that, let me say a word about outdoor preaching. Outdoor preaching has a long history in the church, starting with Jesus, even some of the prophets. But Jesus both preached inside and outside. Uh, if you've been to Israel, you'll know that some of the synagogues where he preached, some of the foundations of those synagogues still stand, like in Magdala and in Capernaum and in uh, Chorazin, one of the places we like to go in Israel. You can still see where he preached indoors, but Jesus also did a lot of outdoor preaching. If you fast forward in church history, you had a lot of outdoor preaching especially when you get up into the Puritans and beyond. Uh, probably the most famous outdoor preacher in American history prior to Billy Graham was George Whitfield. Back in uh, the 1740s and 50s, his name was second only to George Washington in familiarity to the colonists, even though he was British. And he preached, it is estimated, to over 70% of the people in the colonies heard him in person at some point. So he had massive crowds outdoors. Then the Wesleys preached outdoors. And then, of course, Billy Graham. And Billy Graham had massive outdoor crusades. I'm going to talk about him a little bit later in the service today. But in 1949, I doubt if anybody, was anybody at the L.A. crusade in 1949 here that was? <laughs> okay. Uh, it was the, it, he was an unknown at that point. Uh, with Youth for Christ, an evangelist. And in 1949, holding yet another one of their crusades, they put up a huge tent, and the pictures are cool. It was supposed to be a three-week crusade because of the numbers and because of William Randolph Hearst pumping him in his newspapers. It became an eight-week event with over 350,000 people attending. And that is when Billy Graham stepped on in God's providence to the national and world stage at age about 30, 31. 
And so outdoor preaching has a long history and it's more uncomfortable, but there's something also much more real about it and authentic. And it gives a public witness too, to those around. So we are thankful and I'm very, just very thankful to, especially our buildings ground crew for, it just takes an enormous amount of work every year to do this. So first Corinthians 12, we are in a series in Paul's letter to first Corinthians called wise words to a hurting church. And today we come to a section on spiritual gifts, which are those unique abilities God gives people to serve him in his local church. Chapter 12, 13, and 14 are one unit, just so you're aware that this is a letter, or the King James called it an epistle. Uh, An epistle was not a wife of an apostle. It was, (laughs) some people think that. An epistle was a letter. We don't use the word a whole lot, epistolary anymore, but epistle was, a, we call it a letter now. This was a letter written by Paul and chapters, what we call chapter 12, 13, 14, all go together as one unit. We'll be looking at chapter 13 next week, but here, here's the question that comes out of these three chapters. Where are you serving? Now here's the good news. Bible starts with bad news and gives you good news. I'm going to give you good news and bad news. Good news is we have an extraordinary number of people who serve in this church. We have a very large percentage. You saw a lot of them this morning. VBS just recently, we had over 100 volunteers just at our vacation Bible school. When you look at buildings and grounds, when you look at all the children's ministry and youth ministries, when you look at all the different ministries we do with ushering and greeting and all the connections and on and on and on worship, we have hundreds of volunteers. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. There are still numbers who come and sit and leave, and that's it. I'm going to get a little pastoral today, a little pointed at times, but that's not biblical Christianity. We're glad you're here, or we're glad you join and watching. By the way, you don't attend on live stream, just an FYI. You can watch on live stream, but attending and live stream don't go in the same sentence. We're glad we have live stream. Becky and I've used it overseas or when we've been sick. We're glad we have the technology, but there's nothing like being in person. And so we're thankful that you're here, but I hope you also feel the pastoral poke a little bit today. More than that, the Holy Spirit nudge that if you are in a habit of just coming, sitting and leaving, that there is much more for you in the gospel and in the Christian life than that. And it is called serving. So we're going to be looking at that today. We have friends in Michigan. We got a number of friends in Michigan because we served there for 23 years. But one, as I was working on this, one couple came to mind who have the gift of uh, giving. In fact, we have two close friends, I think about it, in Michigan who had the spiritual gift of giving. And uh, interesting to watch them. Both couples live relatively modestly. Both of them have quite a bit of money. And when you watch them as they give to different ministries and as they just talk about it in private with us, just as an example, you see a a buzz in them, just this Holy Spirit electricity that when someone's operating in their gifting, they love it and it just energizes them. So I want you to keep that as a little bit of a backdrop today as we talk about spiritual gifts. This may be a new subject to you. It may not, but I want us to understand what they are and what they're not. And so we're going to walk through this text. We're going to get a little detailed at spots. I hope you have your your tablet or your Bible on your phone or in paper, because we're going to be looking at the text. I'm going to start with verse one. 
And then I'm going to talk about the two things that Paul is going to address this morning. Verse 1, Paul starts right up front. He only says this a couple times in his letters where he doesn't want us to be ignorant about something. In 1 Corinthians 12, 1, now about gifts of the Spirit or spiritual gifts, brothers, sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed. And so our goal this morning is to do what Paul is saying to better inform ourselves. Two things we're going to see in this chapter. First, verses 1 to 11, gifted to serve. I'm going to walk through that. And then secondly, in the last part, called to be the body of Christ, verses 12 down through verse 31. So first of all, gifted to serve. Let me start with a definition of spiritual gifts. This is mine. This is not inspired. This is an amateur definition, okay? But this is what I would define a spiritual gift at. It is an ability given by the Holy Spirit at the time of salvation to a genuine believer in Jesus to serve effectively somewhere in the body of Christ that you would not have had prior to salvation necessarily. It could be a heightened natural talent. That's a different issue. But somehow in the Holy Spirit, and usually he gives them in pairs or more than just one. But if you know Christ, if you are born again, the Holy Spirit's alive in you. The Holy Spirit has given you some abilities to do something in the body of Christ. And the question is, are you using those? Let me give you a couple of what they're not. Okay. Spiritual gifts are not just natural talents like cooking or athletics or singing necessarily or writing. Those can be used for some of our spiritual gifts, but they're also not evidence of spiritual maturity. And the evidence for that is, is that the Corinthian church had a plethora of spiritual gifts and it was one of the most dysfunctional ungodly churches there were, but they had a lot of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are not the hallmark of spiritual maturity. What is? Fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. Nine character qualities that Paul lists in Galatians 5. That is the hallmark of spiritual maturity. John Wesley, the great British evangelist, said, don't seek out great works of ministry, seek out the fruit of the Spirit. That is how you know and that is how you pursue spiritual vitality. You can have spiritual gifts and be extremely ungodly because they're given at salvation and not revoked and operate, unfortunately, can even operate from our perspective, even when someone is in sin or has a backstage life of deception. I can think of at least one, two times where I have listened to an extremely effective preacher who was living at the time I listened to him in adultery and yet was still highly functional and very uh, effective because of the natural gifting God had given that person. I don't even know if they were saved. But so if they weren't, that wasn't even a spiritual gift. But if they were, it was a spiritual gift. But that's different than spiritual fruit. Spiritual fruit does not come to the ungodly. And that is the hallmark. The fruit of the spirit is the hallmark of maturity. That's a very important distinction. All right, Paul lists some of the gifts in this chapter, gifted to serve. Let's look, starting in verse 8. And this is not the most extensive list of spiritual gifts. There are three passages, if you're taking notes, three main texts where spiritual gifts are outlined by Paul. All of them are in his writings. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and then Ephesians 4. That's the primary text for spiritual gifts. 
Starting in verse 8 through verse 11, Paul lists some of them. To one, there is given the Spirit a message of wisdom. And when, we, when he says given to one, he's talking about someone who's genuinely born again here. To one, there is given to the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith. There is a gift of faith. It's an unusual gift of faith uh, given. To, uh, to another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, to some miraculous powers. To another, the gift of prophecy. Another, distinguishing between spirits. That we call it the gift of discernment. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to do a whole sermon just on the gift of tongues. Just on the gift of tongues. Chris Sosnowski said he'll stand up here and demonstrate for us. So, oh, did not No, did I misunderstand it? Amateur. Amateur. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Okay. And still another, the interpretation of tongues. These are all the work of one and the same spirit. He distributes them to each one as he determines. There's a few more gifts listed at the end, uh, verse 27 and 8. You are the body of Christ. He's writing to the Corinthian church. And Paul knows he's right. He even indicates in his letter, he, under, he, he understands there are unbelievers in his audience. But he talks about this church as a whole, as the body of Christ. Each one of you is part of it. God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, of guidance, and different kinds of tongues. So... When you look at the three sections, the three made texts, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, you will, if you were just counting and listing, you'll come up with somewhere between 20 and 30 spiritual gifts mentioned. The big question with New Testament scholars is, is this a complete list or is it a representative list? Scholars are on both sides, but most of the opinion goes over to this is a representative list, probably not an exhaustive list. And for convenience sake... A lot of New Testament scholars divide these into three general categories. Okay, these aren't biblical words, but let me give you the three categories that commonly come up. Support gifts. These would be things like evangelism, discernment. Some of these are mentioned in those other three passages, Romans 12 or Ephesians 4. Uh, preaching, teaching, or faith. Those would be example of support gifts. And then the next category would be broadly called service gifts. A little more behind the scenes. There is a spiritual gift of administration, gift of helps, encouragement, hospitality, leadership, giving, or mercy. And then there's a category that scholars call sign gifts. Typically, kind of gifts put in here are healing, tongues, interpretation of tongues, or miracles. I am convinced, personally, looking at church history and the Bible, that all of the gifts, in some way or another, are still operative today. They don't all display themselves equally around the world. Let me say that. Uh, some of the gifts that Becky and I have seen more in Asia or in Latin America may not necessarily be the same gifts we'd see emphasized here in the States. But I do believe the gifts, my understanding in Scripture and just going around the world talking to believers is they're all operative at some level or not. One important caution is not expecting everyone else to have your level of passion and interest because other believers are not gifted the same way as you. And it's sometimes one of the traps any of us can fall into is, well, why doesn't so-and-so have the same level of mercy or the same interest in serving or the same ability to do administration or the same ability to teach and preach or, or show hospitality? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit 
thankfully, distributes the gifts. And so not everyone's going to have the same gifting, let alone same interest and passion necessarily as you. Paul brings this out explicitly at the end of chapter 12 with a series. Now, in English, these are rhetorical questions. They are not in the Greek text. This was written in Greek, coined Greek. If you start in verse 29, most, in, in fact, any English translation I've ever consulted puts these as rhetorical questions in English. The point here is Paul wants to make it very clear. Not everyone has the same gifts. They're not expected to. Are all apostles. Now it's interesting in the Greek text, these all begin with a small Greek adverb may, which is the word for no, not. So these all start with the word not in Greek and they're just statements. So verse 29 in Greek would say, not all apostles, not all prophets, not all teachers. There's no, there's no doubt what's being said in the, in the original text here. Paul's making it very clear. Do all work miracles? Obviously, no. Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. We look at the gift of tongues. If it is still operative, is it something that is normative for the Christian life? Our Pentecostal brothers and sisters who are very precious brothers and sisters in the Lord would disagree with us on this. Pentecostalism historically argues, claims that it is normative on the path to maturity that every single born again Christian must pass through subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit evidenced by speaking in tongues. Not to be saved, but you can't get to maturity if you don't go through that gate. I think Paul here is very clear. Not all believers are going to speak in tongues, nor are they expected to, which is why I'm not a Pentecostal. Do all interpret now eagerly desire the greater gifts. So it's very clear that all do not have the same. Let me, let me raise three common questions that come up when it comes to spiritual gifts. Number one, who receives them? According to verse seven, the answer is born again Christians. 12 verse seven, now to each one. The each one there means to anyone who is a true born again Christian. One of the most striking features, look at verses four, five, and six. Thomas Schreiner brings this out in his commentary, the one we've been encouraging you to use. One of the most striking features of this section is the Trinitarian focus here. Let me show you. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There's the Holy Spirit mentioned, distributing them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord, word kurios, that refers to Jesus. That word in the New Testament only refers to Jesus. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in, every, in everyone, it is the same God. God is never used of Jesus himself. It is used of God the Father, even though Jesus is God and is compared to God or some others at times, especially in John's gospel, will say he made himself equal with God. It's always talk about God the Father when the word God, G-O-D, is used in the English text. So you have the Spirit mentioned, you have Jesus mentioned, and you have God the Father mentioned all in three verses. So again, one of the striking focuses here, Schreiner brings this out well, is the Trinitarian focus of biblical worship and the distribution of the gifts. Second common question that comes up, what are the purpose of these things? Well, the purpose of this, this is, this is very important. This comes out more in his section in Ephesians 4. So I encourage you to turn over there for a minute. 
This is one of those three chapters I told you about where it's, he lists the gifts. This is his most explicit description of the purpose of gifts and of spiritual gifts. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. By the way, he was probably in Ephesus when he wrote the letter to the Corinthian church. We have pretty good evidence of that. Verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip his people. Here's the, here's the reason. Why? To equip his people, meaning those who are true followers of Jesus, born again, blood-bought saints, for works of service. There's our, there's our reason. So that... The body of Christ might be built up. Everything you're seeing going on here today is a great example. The breakfast, the putting up of all the tent and all the technology. We're so thankful even for our tech team. Took an enormous amount of work. It's not an easy thing for Mike Neme and his crew to pull off all the technology to get this thing up and running out here. You see those that are serving and ushering and greeting and the worship team and all of that. All of it is designed so that the body of Christ is built up until all reach unity in the faith in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So that is the purpose of the gifts, to build up, equip, strengthen, put it in the vernacular, to pull it off, <laughs> protect it, and advance the gospel. That's why God gives the gifts. Third common question, and I answered this a little bit up front. What's the difference between spiritual gifts and spiritual fruit? A lot of people get confused in these. And the difference is spirit, the, the, the fruit of the spirit, ready? It's singular. <laughs> There's two things that gets Pastor Jay slightly riled when it comes to plurals. It is not the book of Revelations. There are revelations in the book of Revelation. <laughs> but it's the book of Revelation. And secondly, actually, yay, there's three. Now that I'm going here. Yeah. Secondly, it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. There are fruits running around the kingdom of God, but that's not, that's a different issue. Okay. There's, I grew up in California. That is a land of fruit and nuts. Okay. That's a different issue. It is the fruit of the Spirit. The third one is an English translation fiasco, and that is the word peoples in the Old Testament with an S. Now, a lot of translations do get this correctly, but our own free church doctrinal statement does not. It talks about taking the gospel to all people. Well, that is a good goal, but that's not the biblical mandate. It's to take it to all peoples. So you want to get your singulars and your plurals accurately theologically on that issue. So it's the fruit of the spirit, nine character qualities, Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patient, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those come as a package by the Holy Spirit as somebody is maturing in Christ. All nine come as a singular package. The gifts of the spirit come separately or in smaller clusters. To put it another way, the fruit of the Spirit is character-oriented. Gifts of the Spirit are task-oriented. 
So there's a difference there. $100,000 question is this before we end this first point. If you know Jesus, if you are born again, if you have turned from your sin, owned your faith, are filled with the Holy Spirit, how do you know what your gift is? Gifts are. Glad you asked. Let's talk about that for just a minute. When I ask that question, almost instinctively, the first answer I get is, well, I took a spiritual gifts test and this is what it showed me. There's nothing wrong with spiritual gift tests. I'm not a big fan of them. I've never taken one. I think that they're okay to confirm. That shouldn't be our default mode is to go take a test. How do you know then what your gifting is? Let me give you a couple ways. I, these are my words. Ease, effectiveness, and enjoyment. I've used this before. We use this in the new member seminar. This is just, this is not necessarily a biblical uh, uh, paradigm, but I, it works biblically. First of all, ease. One of the ways to identify your spiritual gifting is it should come with a certain amount of ease. That doesn't mean it's not going to be easy, but it sh- there should be an ease in operating in it. It should come naturally. And I had a staff member one time, and I loved the way he put it. He said this, If you are gifted in something spiritually, you can do it well when you're tired. That's an interesting thing. There's certain things I can't do well no matter how rested I am. You don't want me up here singing. And although I go to the hospital at times, you'd much rather have Pastor Tim walk in. Usually if I show up, it means you're one step away from going to see Jesus. (laughs) So you... Not necessarily the guy you want to see come in. (laughs) But you can do it when you're tired and you can do it fairly well. Second way beyond ease is effectiveness. You're effective at it. When genuine Christians operate in their spiritual gifting, you can just tell they're good at it and they like it. We'll get to that in a second, but they're good at it. They're good at it. So say someone who has, let's take a different gift. I opened with a, a story of our two, two friends of ours who are, have the gift of giving. Let me talk about Billy Graham and the gift of evangelism. Now, every single Christian, young people, old people, everybody people, we're all, if you know Jesus, we are commanded to be sharing the gospel. That's evangelism. Every believer is under the mandate. However, it is very clear God gifts some with an unusual ability to be effective at it. Like who? Omar. Yes. Omar had the gift of evangelism. I'll never forget sitting with Omar and Rose. We did. And he pulled out one of his favorite, most treasured things, a signature of Billy Graham, an autograph. And I said, how'd you get this? And he said, he was at a youth for, youth, not youth for Christ. What was he with? Campus Crusade. And he was at an event and he said, I went over to him and he said, he went over and we went in a corner. He gave me his undivided attention. He asked me all about myself, he said. And then he gave me his autograph. And Omar had that thing laminated. And it was very, very precious to him. Omar, Billy Graham, had the gift. When you look at Billy Graham's ministry, some of you don't know who Billy Graham is. Google it. <laughs> there is nobody on the planet beyond the Apostle Paul, yea, Jesus, who has preached the gospel to more people 
in open air situations than Billy Graham. Even if you've never heard of him, it is worth investigating. A couple examples. I told you 1949, when, he, when God put him on the world stage, what they expected to be a few thousand in three weeks turned into 350,000 in eight weeks. Here's some other statistics. July 1957, and a lot of these you can see still on YouTube. His preaching in the 50s and the 60s, to me, were the best, especially in the 50s. I love watching his sermons from the 50s. In July 57, Yankee Stadium, 93 degrees, 100,000 people filled Yankee Stadium for two to three hours for the Billy Graham rally. Unheard of. 1959, Melbourne, Australia, 143,000 filled the soccer stadium. And in Sydney, next week, 150,000 people. 1962, here in Chicago, Soldier Field, July, it was over 100 degrees. Paul and Lila Wilson were there. Anybody else there? 1962 at that event? 116,000 people filled Soldier Field in blazing July sun to hear Billy Graham and his team lead. And in the 1970s, here's three more, 110,000 in Budapest, 100,000 in Bucharest, Romania, and the largest audience ever measured outdoors, over 1 million in Seoul, Korea. The aerial photograph is amazing. That is an anointing. That is a spiritual gift at work. No different, no better, no worse than any other. I use it as an an extreme example, but just an example that if you're gifted in something, whether it's a a visible thing or or something very behind the scenes, that doesn't matter. All are equal in God's eyes in that sense. You're going to be unusually effective at it. And so you're looking at, is is there an ease to it? Can I do this when I'm tired? Am I effective at it? And the last one is enjoyment. Truly, enjoyment. Do I enjoy it? Is there, even if I'm trashed when I'm done, talk to my wife, she'll tell you after watching me preach for years on Sunday afternoon, I'm not very, I'm just a noodle. Why? Because I'm I'm tired. I'm an introvert and I give out a lot on Sundays. We love it. We love Sunday. We love Sabbath. We love worship and corporate worship and being with the flock and worshiping and preaching. But when it's done, we, the phrase we use is joyful exhaustion. So ease, effectiveness, and enjoyment. If you know Jesus, what comes with ease to you when you think of ministry? Do others affirm you're effective at it? Do you see that? Does your spouse, your kids, and others just go, man, you're good at that? And does it bring joyful exhaustion to you? Now, if you want to take a spiritual gifts test after that to confirm, great. But that should be pretty evident to you as you look at what is your gifting. All right, let's dive into the last part of this, called to be the body of Christ. Paul shifts his focus just a bit here. Back to 1 Corinthians 12. We'll finish up with the last verses, verses 12 through verse 30. Paul's teaching on gifts naturally leads into his teaching about true Christians and how they make up the body of Christ. I love this section. This is robust ecclesiology. And by that, I mean the doctrine of the church. This is one of the strongest passages on the doctrine of the church. Look at verses 12 to 14. Chapter 12, verses 12 to 14. 
Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts from one body, so it is with Christ. For we are, we're all baptized by one spirit. This is not water baptism. I'll talk about that in a second. So as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink, even so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And specifically, Paul's going to talk about how all the many parts become one body. There's kind of a many and one here. Look at verses 15 to 20. He gets very almost comical. So what if the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. I mean, obviously it's like, well, that's nutso. It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. How about the ear? What if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. Well, I like my ears and my eyes, so I hope they both stay on my head. It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eyeball, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. There's the sovereignty of God in spiritual gifting. If they were all one part, where would the body be? It wouldn't. It'd be a giant ear or a giant nose. As it is, there are many parts, but one body. And let me just add, this is one of the differences between, say, a parachurch ministry and the church. I'm very, very thankful. We all are for parachurch ministries. God has raised up. These would be Christian hospitals, uh, Christian camps, different ministries, inner varsity, and all the different things God has raised up to, to aid the ministry. But a parachurch ministry, by definition, para in Greek means alongside the church, comes alongside the church to help in some particular area, but it's generally a group of people that have the same interest, same focus, same spiritual gifting. That is not the church per se. The difference is in the church, you have all the gifting and all the interest, and it's a body, and you have the many and the one. So his point here, as you look at verses 12 down through verse 20, every Christian is part of Christ's mystical body. So I said, this is about the big word ecclesiology. That means the doctrine of the church, ecclesia, ecclesia, which is gathering. Every believer, if you know Jesus, you have been united with Christ. You are one with Christ. Christ is alive within you. And while there are many ministries and agencies, again, they're not necessarily, they're not church. There's only one church. And the reformers said to be a church, whether large or small, three things have to be true. One, God's word must be preached, apostolic doctrine. That's why a Bible study, as good as they are, Becky and I love Bible studies, they're not the church. Reading a verse and then going, okay, Bob, what do you think? Okay, Judy, what do you think? Okay, Jose, what do you think? That's, that's not apostolic declaration of, 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 of doctrine. There has to be apostolic preaching. And then secondly, the sacraments have to be practiced. That is baptism and communion. Thirdly, the, the reformers said you have to have church discipline to be a church. I think they missed at least one more. And that is you have to have a plurality of elders, of godly leaders that are either appointed and or elected or somehow are overseeing the whole thing. So God's word is preached. You have plurality of godly spiritual leaders. The sacraments are given and you are doing church discipline. That is why a community group is not a church. 
That is why a Bible study is not a church. That's why an university gathering on a college campus is not a church. Unless they're preaching, doing the sacraments, doing church discipline, and they have elders. Otherwise, it's not. Now, notice verse 13, because this is the key to Paul's theology. Just as we work our way down here, verse 13. We are all baptized. Again, every true believer, if you're not a believer, hopefully you'll hear the gospel today and repent and believe. But if you are, all of us have been baptized by one spirit. Interesting. Let me talk about the word baptized. The word baptized is not an English word. It's a Greek word, baptizo. It's a verb, and it just means to dunk, dip, submerge, immerse. Immerse is probably the best synonym. And the New Testament speaks of two kinds of baptism. Did you know that? Spirit baptism, water baptism. They're not the same. Spirit baptism is immersion in the spirit. That's when the spirit comes on somebody the moment they're saved and gives them all the resources they will need to live the Christian life, fills them with the Holy Ghost, puts them in union with Christ, gives them their spiritual gifts, gives them new abilities, new desires, gives them a brand new heart for God. They're a new, what, creation. Uh, the King James, a new creature in Christ. That's spirit, that's, that's spirit baptism. It happens at the moment of conversion. Water baptism is then commanded afterwards. You heard Chris say today. It's the first act of obedience once we're saved. So spirit baptism is automatic at the moment of conversion. Water baptism is in the imperative. So you'd say, another way to say this, spirit baptism is in the indicative. It's something that happens at salvation. Water baptism is in the imperative. It is commanded after salvation. And as we'll see in a couple of weeks, there is no biblical ongoing evidence that speaking in tongues is normative as evidence that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Interesting that in Jesus' own water baptism in Matthew 3, John the Baptist says this of Jesus. found this interesting. So Jesus is just baptized in water. And then John the Baptist says this, the one coming after me, speaking of Jesus, will baptize with the Holy Spirit and what? Fire. What's he, what's he mean? Well, as Savior, he baptizes every believer with the Holy Spirit. As judge, he will baptize every unbeliever in fire. In other words, Jesus will immerse those who believe into his family and immerse the others into judgment. Lastly, verses 21 to 27, Paul continues the theme of oneness here, stressing Christians are mutually dependent on each other. And this is a, by the way, a direct rebuke of rugged individualism in America. Verses 21 to 26. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together again. Sovereignty of God emphasized here. He is the one who decides who has what. Giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no divisions, no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. I love verse 26. If one part suffers, there's a lot of suffering anytime a group this size gets together. 
Every part suffers with it. One part is honored. Every part rejoices with it. What a powerful reminder. And hence the value of a local church and the community of the local church. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church. And then he adds one more phrase. What? The gates of hell will not stand against it. Great reminder when we see so much that goes on around us, it seems so discouraging. Hence the importance of the church, of the Sabbath, and of obeying, which is one of the most disobeyed commandments in modern America. And hence the value of getting involved in a church. I hope that you, if you're not a member, I hope you will be considered becoming a member in our congregation of getting connected, getting involved in serving and receiving. This is a great chapter as Paul goes through his argument. So it leads to two summons. Here they are this morning. One, and I'm assuming I'm talking to those who know Christ as Savior. One, do you know what your spiritual gifts are? And I put it in the plural because virtually any Christian I know has a, a couple of them. Do you know what they are? You should be able to very quickly rattle off at least your top two gifts. When anybody asks you, just, yeah, these are my gifts. It's not an issue of pride. I mean, it can be, but it shouldn't be. You should be able to say, oh yeah, I have the gift of hospitality and the gift of mercy, or I have the gift of tongues and the gift of leadership or something, but you should be able to know what your top two gifts are. And then the second one, here comes the little Holy Spirit poke. Are you using your spiritual gifts? Actively using your gifts is a matter of obedience, friends. I know I'm talking to many who are using your gifts. I want to thank you. This is a very serving church. I also know I'm talking to some here who don't. You've come for a long time. You, sit, you, know, you, you come, shop, drop, flop, leave. <laughs> that is not New Testament Christianity. It's also a horrible example to your children. That's not biblical Christianity. We have lots of opportunities to serve next weekend. We were going to do it this weekend, except we're outdoors. We're going to have some ministry booths set up in the lobby. These won't cover all of our ministries, but I asked our ministry leaders a couple weeks ago. I just gave them a heads up that this chapter is coming, the sermon's coming. And who could at the last minute just kind of scramble, put a ministry booth together? A number of them did. So next Sunday, this will not be an all-out ministry uh, event, uh, you know, booth event, but here's, here's someone that will be out in our lobby. Uh, an outreach booth uh, about how to get involved locally and globally, an early childhood booth, a WANA, an informed choices uh, about the pro-life movement and getting involved, and also connections having to do with everything from valet to greeters. So those will be some of the booths that will be up next weekend. If you want to know more about other ministry opportunities, there's a lot on our website. Kelly Demakis does a great job keeping that updated. Talk to any of our pastors or directors or elders. They can, they can point you to different directions. The bottom line is, let's get in, let's serve. That's the only way that we will ultimately keep moving forward and become gospel penetrators into a dark culture. And it's a great privilege. Let me lead us in prayer, and then Chris is going to lead us in a couple more songs with this crew. Father, we are grateful for the Apostle Paul and his 13 letters. What an unusual missionary, theologian, leader that you created in this man. Those of us who know the Lord look forward someday to, to meeting him on the new earth. 
Thank you for this chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, and for Ephesians 4 and Romans 12. It talks about these gifts. Thank you for gifting us. Thank you that your Holy Spirit's the one sovereignly who decides who has what. Help us to honor those who have behind-the-scenes gifts. Help us to honor those who have out-of-the-way gifts that aren't so much seen visibly up front. We thank you for each person involved here, and we pray especially for those today who do not know Christ, that you would pull them, drag them to the Savior. They too would become one with Christ and be gifted to serve. And we pray all of this joyfully as we sing now in Jesus' name. Amen.